generally, I would say, you know, for us, 200,000 page views is sort of like table stakes for a, a, a mid-sized hit. Um, and a, you know, a really big hit for us could be two, three, four, five million page views. Hi, I'm Eric Schwartzman, author of The Digital Pivot, and this is the Earned Media Podcast. My guest today is Jake Swearingen, Deputy Editor at Business Insider. He's written for Consumer Reports, New York Magazine, The Atlantic, Wired Slate, and LA Weekly. I remember that one. Yeah, yeah. I'm from LA. So were you in LA when you were writing for LA Weekly? I did, yeah. I lived in uh, Los Feliz for about a year. Oh, that's a great area. Yeah, I love that area. I miss, I miss LA a lot. Today, we're going to talk about what makes Business Insider unique, their meteoric rise to name brand status on the internet, opportunities for coverage, and the post-pandemic retail rebound. Stay with us. I'm here with Jake Swearingen, Deputy Editor at Business Insider. He was previously technology reporter at Consumer Reports. I can't imagine a more different publication. What a... <laughs> What, uh, what, what led to your moving from Consumer Reports to Business Insider? Uh, I mean, that's a really good question. I think uh, one is that I got, you know, I was, I had some people reach out to come over to Business Insider that I really respected. Um, so that helped. Um, but also just the chance to come over and work uh, with a group of reporters and editors. I just noticed over you know, three or four years of reporting, how much more and more I would start to look for articles on certain subjects. I reported a lot on Amazon and I would start to see stories about Amazon coming out of Business Insider and be like, that's really good. Like that's a that's a big scoop. That is a big piece of the pie that like, you know, previously we didn't understand about Amazon and that was coming more and more out of Business Insider. Um, so by the time somebody approached me to come over and be an editor over here, I was already interested in Business Insider. Um, they it just seemed to be on the terror of just bringing over smart, you know, smart, interesting people to write smart, interesting things for them. It's a relatively new brand. Uh, they came around, they came about in 2007. They basically took a bunch of blogs and turned them into a publication. I think it was originally Silicon Valley Watcher, right? Silicon Alley Insider. I'm going to, okay. if you're asking me to be exact on the, all the permutations of the brand, I might get it wrong. I think it was Silicon Alley Insider um, for a while, then Business Insider, then The Business Insider, then back to Business Insider. And we actually, as of earlier this year, we just officially became just Insider. And Business Insider is now sort of a sub-vertical of Insider overall, which covers politics, um, sports, entertainment, and then, of course, business, which is still one of our main interests. What are the other brands other than Business Insider? Uh, our other brands are, we have Life, um, which is a lot of entertainment stuff, a lot of um, sort of essays about what it's like to be alive right now, um, obviously, <laughs> always of interest. And then news, um, we do a lot of just straight news reporting. We have a politics team um, that's uh, extremely uh, active. We have a DC bureau that we've been building out with some people we brought over from Politico. So those are sort of the main threads is that we have a business section, a news section, which covers stuff that's sort of outside of the business uh, world. And then we have a life section that covers uh, a bit more of, you know, what you might find um, in a more magazine style uh, website. And then you guys were purchased by a German publisher fairly recently, right? Yeah, I would have to actually look up the exact date on this, but I believe about 2015, uh, we were purchased by Axel Springer. Um, which is a huge German conglomerate. Um, they own a lot of magazines and newspapers throughout Europe. Um, and yeah, they were, I mean, they were one of the reasons that we've been able, that certainly I'm working here, and I think a lot of people working here, is that they were able to sort of take, I think, what Henry uh, Blodgett, our founder and CEO, um, was able to start up and really take that and pour some gas on the fire. So we were able, to, we've been in the expansion period really for the past two two and a half, three years, um, able to grow. And at the same time, because the people who leave this company are very on the ball, 
we've been able to stay profitable as well. Does any of the coverage that you guys uh, put together wind up in getting translated and moving in any of the European publications that your parent company owns? I know that we, you know, so there is, uh, we have some sort of uh, international arms. um, And I know that sometimes our stories make it over onto the German sites. Uh, I think we have, we have BI India, which is written in English, obviously. Um, So there is some, there's some crossover, but I actually, it's a bit above my pay grade, exactly how that stuff moves around. And then a lot of stuff from other publications winds up moving on Business Insider. Often yeah, we under have a lot different. Of, yeah, well, what are those? What deals are in place for you to take content from other companies? We have syndication agreements with a lot of um, outlets. I mean, Reuters being a big one, um, obviously. Uh, but we also sometimes we bring stuff over from Axios, stuff from ProPublica. Um, in my experience, I mean, I, this again is part of the business that I'm not directly involved in, but. Uh, you know, these sort of syndication agreements or these partnerships are pretty common at this point uh, between a lot of websites where we sort of understand that uh, it's better for everybody the more that your content gets spread around um, and gets syndicated to big sites with good reach, um, which is definitely describes us. So now when you were at uh, Consumer Reports and New York Magazine, you were a writer and now you're a deputy editor. So that's a <laughs> bit of a shift for you. Um, what does a normal day look like for you at Business Insider? Um, it, I mean, I started about two weeks before the pandemic shut everything down. So it's hard for me to say what it'll be like once we actually fully open back up. A normal day for me is generally, you know, getting online about 8 o'clock, 8.30. Um, we sort of check in to see what the run of the stories is, um, check in with the other desks, um, find out what people are writing on. And then generally it's a mixture of working directly with editors and working directly with reporters um, to find out what are the bigger stories. That's generally where I step in that we're working on. Um, And then also sort of trying to plot out what we're going to be going after over the next two, three, four weeks um, where the companies that we think are really worth covering right now, what are the places where we think that we could find, uh, you know, a really good scoop, a really good story if we continue to pour more resources into it. So it's a little bit of direct editing, a little bit of direct work with reporters, and it's a little bit of longer-term strategy. Um, as for the actual day-to-day, it's a lot of this, doing a lot of um, video meetings and a lot of slacking back and forth between reporters, editors, and writers. Before, uh, when you were a technology writer at New York Magazine, just to, just to cover that, for a second before we get into Business Insider more. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to us about that publication for a moment because you were there almost three years. What mm-hmm. makes New York Magazine unique? I think, I mean, what made New York Magazine unique to me is probably different than I think what a lot of people would latch on to, which is um, I think the, the print publication is an amazing product. Um, but for me, when I sort of was coming up as a younger writer, which is really the end of the aughts, um, what, stru- what stood out to me about New York Magazine, and one of the reasons I was really excited to join it, was how well that they actually took to the internet. I think that they were one of the first magazines to really figure out how to exist on the internet, um, particularly the sites um, Vulture and The Cut, um, really stand as their own products and really bring a certain level of storytelling and a certain level of journalism to the internet, but still move at the pace of the internet. So that a site like Vulture really figure out how to do both long, sort of really you know, beautifully written profiles and interviews, and also do short little things where it's just, here's a new trailer, here's a joke about the trailer, and we're done. Um, so for me, I think that you know what made it unique, obviously, especially when the time I was there, was the editorial sensibility of Adam Moss and the ability to sort of translate certain viewpoint um, of very well-educated, um, very smart, very funny people um, about how they saw New York and how they saw the world at large. For me, what made it unique and the reason that I really loved it is that I felt like they did such a good job of making intensely readable web content, which is a really much, much harder than um, you may think unless you've tried to do it for a number of years. It's really hard to write stuff that is actually easy to read and enjoyable and just has that thing of as soon as you start reading it, you can't stop. So, um, you know, the New York Times is the New York Times, but it's really a, an international publication now. 
you know, certainly there's local coverage for local readers, but in my Sunday New York Times, I don't get those local sections. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the coverage, I know that they alter the headline when they move a story uh, from print to, to the web, or maybe when they move a story from the web to print, because they probably <laughs> move online first. Um, mm-hmm. How does a story that works in print differ from a story that works online? That's a really good question. I think that, you know, almost any story that works online can work for print. I think that in a lot of ways, I think that print has an easier job of it. Um, Once you're reading a print product, you're sort of locked in, you know, you've opened up a magazine and you're flipping through, but you're going to only your choices of when you're flipping through a newspaper, you're flipping through a magazine are to read the things that are in that newspaper and that magazine. You're sort of, you know, that's, those are your options. Uh, when you're reading something online, your options are literally billions of other things that you could look at. Um, and if you're working in the written word, you know, most of them are going to be uh, a lot of video, uh, a lot of, you know, short form video, things like that, but things that maybe uh, are inherently a bit more captivating than uh, the written word. Um, I think that, you know, the things that work well for print that translate over to online tend to be the longer cover stories, longer features, the things that you can really sink time, money, and invest into. Um, what you see that doesn't work so well in print that doesn't translate over into online tends to be the shorter front of book section stuff, um, the sort of 250, 500 word things that tend to look really good when they're laid out in a specific way and have a very specific design that you can do in print. But for a digital publication, it's actually really hard to do a custom design for every single piece of content. So things that may look good on the printed page don't always translate well in the digital, in my experience, uh, having worked with a lot of print publications that exist on the web. So, um, you know, a factory worker uh, is going to be judged by their output, you know, the number of, you know, cars they get off the line, manufactured correctly with no flaws. How are you measured? I would say we're measured in two ways. I mean, one thing that um, we're pretty upfront about here uh, is that we, we do, we fall, you know, we use metrics to see how stories do. So, um, for some of our stories, that means how many page views they do. For the stuff I work on, that's um, how many subscribers we bring in um, because we do have a paid product that we're you know investing heavily in. A lot of our hires over the past couple of years have been focused on that. Um, so there's definitely you know we keep an eye on how many sort of people are looking at a story, how many people are paying to read a story. Um, the other part of it, I would say that's a little bit harder, you know, that's the sort of quantitative side, the qualitative side that I'm judged on um, and that we're judging our stories on is the stories that we feel like are really advancing a uh, conversation forward or have, you know, in the parlance of journalism have impact. So, you know, do we write a story and does it mean that a company changes its policies? Does it change how it does something? Um, do we write a story and it changes how a government does something? Um, is it cited in Congress? Things like that. Um, if we can write consistently stories that we feel like are either creating, either creating a conversation or continuing, you know, continuing a conversation that's going on right now in the zeitgeist, or we can report on something that was previously unknown and it causes an actual change in the world. Um, that is, it's harder to measure. It's much easier to measure page views. It's much easier to measure how many new subscribers you're getting. But um, if you can do that consistently, you also start to build up a brand and a reputation that is uh, pretty invaluable. How many page views would make a story successful? Um, I mean, it sort of depends. And <laughs> it depends on the publication you're at. Uh, certainly here, our numbers are a lot bigger than they might be at some of the smaller outlets I've worked at. So place like LA Weekly, um, a big hit would barely register um, here. Um, generally, I would say, you know, for us, 200,000 page views is sort of like table stakes for a, a, mid, a mid-sized hit. Um, and a, you know, a really big hit for us could be two, three, four, five million page views. How, how fast would you expect this to come? Would this come over time or right away? Uh, what, what took the page views or the, yeah, yeah, the, the page story? views? Uh, 
Generally, that would be over, you know, the course of like 24, 48 hours. Um, generally, stories that are big hits, um, they are, they're either too, you know, you either get all the traffic up front um, because it's, you know, you have hit on something that people are really looking for. Um, you know, the flip side is that you do have stories. And these are the ones that are a little bit harder to see because um, particularly when you're doing traffic, every editor and reporter uh, probably looks at Chartbeat a little too much. The stories that are harder to see are the ones that sort of bring in four or 500 page views a day, but they do that consistently over the course of a year. And that adds up to a lot of traffic over time. Um, those are sort of long tail hits um, that are sometimes harder to see when you're just doing something like Chartbeat and looking at real-time analytics, but easier to see once you take a step back. Are you expected, is, are your writers are expected to have some level of search engine optimization on the story? Are they consulting popular search terms and making sure that they embrace whatever the popular term is for whatever it is they're writing about, or not really? Um, I would say that what we want to do is make sure that our stories are that you can find them. Um, so if you are searching for something, we certainly want to make sure that our stories are discoverable. Um, and we want to make sure that, you know, we have things like a browser title. So the sort of shorter title that'll appear in Google when you see the story um, is a good, both like represents the story well, and also, you know, generally feels a little bit compelling or, you know, uh, is a little bit captivating. You, you want to click in and you want to see what's going on. Um, in my experience, it's really, really hard to keyword chase. Um, once you start getting into, it's not something that, you know, I would encourage our writers to do here or that we do actively. Um, once you start trying to chase things like trending topics um, or sort of whatever the, you know, sort of Google keyword of the moment is, you're getting into a fight with, you know, a hundred other sort of websites that all they do is chase that traffic. Um, and, you might you might win, you might lose, but you end up uh, you're playing in a game that's very very crowded with a lot of players. Versus um, for us, you know, we tend to know what does well for us and stick to that, and then just hope that we SEO it correctly because it is a big way that we you know readers discover us and that our stories are found. Um, what percentage of your traffic comes from search? I would have to look at our analytics suite, um, but roughly it can vary depending on the vertical and depending on if we're talking about stuff in front of the paywall or behind the paywall, but roughly about 30 to 40%, I think, comes from search. And are, are writers expected to turn in several headlines and do you test headlines? Uh, I, I love a writer that comes with several headlines. Uh, generally, headlines are something that are worked out between the writer and the editor um, and sometimes, you know, the editor above them and me, um, we do, we do AB testing, uh, of headlines, um, a fair amount, um, using mainly our homepage. So, you know, we show a small subset of the audience, one headline, another, another, and we see which one clicks through. Um, yeah. And we also are, you know, not afraid to, if we see a story that we think is good, particularly like one that we really believe in isn't performing, we'll look at it and say, did we get the framing of this wrong? Is the headline off? Um, and put a new headline on it and sort of put it back up and see if it gets traffic or gets subscribers then. More with Business Insider Deputy Editor Jake Swearingen after this. Jake, other than the must-cover stories from newsmakers like Amazon and Apple, what types of smaller stories is Business Insider interested in? I would say right now we're really interested in um, a couple of things. So I, I sit on the retail desk um, and the transportation desk, um, the two that I oversee. Um, but on retail and specifically, I think we're really curious right now about what happens on e-commerce. Um, they've had, uh, obviously e-commerce has had a tremendous year because of COVID and because uh, people basically, uh, I think, sought out their dopamine through online shopping in some ways. Um, so we're curious to see how resilient that growth has been, um, how much it sticks around once the world opens back up. Um, there's also been some retail sectors that have done really, really well during the pandemic, grocery being the most obvious. So again, seeing how resilient that is, how much do people 
that have gotten in the habit of buying most of their food at the grocery store, um, how much do they keep that once they can just go to any restaurant at any time and not have to worry about, you know, can I eat indoors, outdoors, et cetera. Um, on the flip side, I think that we're also really curious to see things like a lot of the major um, apparel brands, um, Gap, um, J. Crew, et cetera, um, have really had obviously had a terrible year. Um, nobody was wearing business casual. People weren't buying a lot of clothes that weren't sort of pretty much leisure. Um, a couple of the, and even the athleisure brands didn't do great. Um, to see how they come back, uh, and then to also see how some of the sort of more traditional brick and mortar businesses, um, sort of what you may think of as the mall brands, um, how they do as the world opens back up. I think that there's a lot of appetite and a lot of pent up money demand to go back to um, a nice store and go look and touch uh, the clothes that you want to buy. Um, but um, I would say those are the main things that we're curious about. We're also just generally, you know, I think that for our audience and what we've made uh, a lot of our uh what our reputation is built on is finding early disruptors. So anytime that we can find companies that we believe will create a major change in the way that people buy, or at least uh, put uh, a sharp elbow into the entrenched players, we're curious in covering them as well. But um, everything you're talking about is major brands, major companies. Um, and even in the context of a startup that's disrupting the marketplace, I'm assuming these are companies that are, are major companies that you're interested in. Is there a, is there an interest in um, startups and small business at all? I don't see much of that coverage with you guys. We do some smalls, we do startup stuff, but for us, there does need to be a certain bar that's crossed before we'll cover a startup. Um, you know, we're not trying to be, I don't know, um, and this is not pejorative at all. We're not trying to be TechCrunch where we're going to cover every single company that gets any sort of funding whatsoever. Um, we generally want to cover companies that we feel like are both getting investor dollars um, right now because you know there's just a lot of money sloshing around. So investor dollars don't even necessarily clear a bar for us. It's they need to be bringing in investor dollars and then also be doing something that we think is genuinely interesting. Um, whether that's they have a mode of business that we think is interesting, they have a way of standing out in the marketplace that's interesting. Um, a story that we did recently um, that our readers really loved is about a chocolate company in Canada called Midday Squares um, that sort of does uh, what's, you know, in the retail and the consumer packaged goods space is called functional foods, so sort of high performing foods, foods that are supposed to give you a little extra boost. Um, Midday Squares sells a chocolate bar, you're supposed to buy in the middle of the day. They're based in Canada. Um, and they did a Instagram reality show. Um, and they you know, were able to get enough buzz and also were doing well enough in sales that they actually turned down an acquisition offer from Hershey's. Um, so that, you know, that for us is sort of a perfect small, smaller company story. It is a brand that you probably haven't heard of. They're coming to the U.S. soon. Um, they project about 10 million revenue for this year. Um, but they have a nice hook in that, you know, they're a company that um, Hershey's was interested in. And they also have this interesting sort of marketing approach that, you know, may not work for every startup. I definitely wouldn't think that every startup should do a reality show, but for them actually got them a pretty sizable audience, even outside of the people who maybe would follow a consumer package, good company. Um, 60 minutes, uh, this week ran a story about the Greenwood massacre, uh, by a white mob that burned down what was called black wall street. And um, it's a hundred years ago. It's the uh, it's the anniversary, and mm -hmm. so you know they're covering it today. But and there's a wave of coverage now around systemic injustice, which mm -hmm. was I mean, obviously in the in, in back then, the media must have been complicit in silencing this stuff and not covering it. And now we have these wave of stories that are sort of opening our eyes to systemic injustice that we really didn't know about. A lot of us, I certainly didn't. Mm -hmm. Is there a parallel in business journalism? Is there an untold story that's not getting told that you'd like to see told? I, I'd want to be, well, first of all, I, I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, and wow. I'd, be, I'd want to be what a coincidence. Careful. Oh my God. I'd want to be very, very careful about drawing any parallels between 
both what happened in Tulsa um, and generally what you saw in the media coverage of George Floyd, which was exposing a lot of deep-seated systemic problems that may not have been obvious to a lot of um, readers who weren't readers of color, but were obvious to a lot of people who had experienced um, a lot of very terrible things firsthand um, to any sort of business parallel. I, it, you know, I just to say that, that that would be a little bit of an uncomfortable thing. That said, I do think that, you know, if you were talking about, are there smaller business stories that are going uncovered right now that I feel like we should be, that the media at large should be covering more? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that there, um, I think that the media probably was not skeptical enough um, during the early SPAC craze. Um, it was just sort of a, you know, initial, wow, there's a lot of money coming in and a lot of these companies are getting a lot um, without sort of the attendant um, skepticism that we probably should have brought to that. Um, I would also say that um, we, um, it is a, it's a bit of a feedback problem, I would say, between um, both our audience and then ourselves is that um, very, very small companies that could go on to do a lot um, but when we're just writing about potential, when we're just writing about the opportunity, we tend to see that audiences don't really respond to just like, this could be big someday. Um, audiences really want to know about what is becoming big right now. Um, and so because audiences don't respond to that, we tend to not cover it very much. Um, we probably miss some of the companies that are going to, in the next 10, 15, 20 years, be huge because we just are not interested in sort of covering that very, very small time stuff. Um, but that's also the difference between say what we're doing and, you know, a much more focused trade publication might be doing um, where to some degree, if you're really heavily involved in that space and you are a smaller company or representing a smaller company, your time may be better spent going after the smaller trade publication because we certainly look at what the trade publications are doing as sort of an early barometer for what may be bubbling up into the general reader consciousness. How many pitches are you getting from PR people daily? I mean, for me, I'm probably getting, I don't know. I mean, I filter most of them, so I don't actually see most of them. Um, and I'm, you know, I am a deputy editor, so I don't get that many direct pitches. Um, you know, probably, 20 or 30 a day. Um, I know that when I was an active reporter, um, I would get hundreds um, a day. Um, and yeah, it, you know, I think that for every reporter who publishes almost anywhere, the pure amount of signal that you get is makes it really hard to pick out noise. Um, or excuse me, I think I reversed that. The amount of noise you get makes it hard to pick out the signal. Um, you just, you get so many pitches that even if you wanted to read all of them, you couldn't. And if you do try to sort of, you know, if you get to the point where you're like, oh, I don't have a story for my editor today, and you start going through your PR pitch list, um, they can also start to feel very one note and samey. It can be hard to distinguish uh, through them, is my experience. So um, how many, on, on average, would you say you actually read? And I'm curious to know of the filtering. What do you filter out? Uh, I mean, I just have uh, by my Gmail automatically sort of sorts stuff into like, here's stuff from people, you know, that <laughs> Gmail basically designates as like, this is important. Um, and then there's a separate folder that's basically like promotions, which is where most of the PR stuff goes. Um, I would say that, you know, I will generally look for stuff. Um, I will generally open anything, and this is getting more to my own personal interests. Um, anything that is sort of talking about companies, the smaller companies that are sort of creating ancillary economies around uh, Amazon. Um, I'm really interested in that. Um, I think that one of the stories that's been told a few times, but that we should be continuing to watch is the roll up and the consolidation of third party sellers on Amazon's marketplace right now. Um, I'm generally pretty interested in anything D to C um, is generally I'll at least like look at the pitch for a second and see if I should like forward it along to one of the reporters. That's direct to consumer. Yes. Yeah. Direct to consumer. So the brands that are generally avoiding, you know, trying to get onto retail shelves and avoiding the middleman, uh, your Warby Parkers. 
Um, that is such an exciting category. You know, I got to tell you, in Los Angeles, pretty much all the warehouse space that's left because most of the warehouse space downtown was converted to creative office space is being mm -hmm. used by D2C companies. Many are small brands you've never heard of who are doing 20, 30, 40 million a year um, in 15 to 20,000 square feet, uh, bringing something in, usually from China, assembling it, printing a logo on it, taking a picture of it, and then selling it direct to consumer with a website. It's amazing how that is just flourishing even during the yeah. pandemic. I mean, I think the pandemic actually probably helped some of those brands lift off. Um, I know that I was certainly, um, I know that I certainly was guilty of doing the Instagram scroll and then getting my eye caught by uh, a nice watch um, or, uh, you know, a better pair of sweatpants and being like, you know what? Sure, let's do it. Um, in a way that maybe not during the pandemic, I might not have been quite as... Uh, enticed um to do uh, to do that yeah it's i think d2c is um something that really still we're still in early days about uh, how big that category can grow what's a good length for a pr pitch i think a good length for a pr pitch is 300 words i mean you really you probably uh i would say that the best pitches generally tend to not be very long. I know that for PR people, there's the tendency and the hope that if you sort of give me a Wikipedia entry um, about your client that I'm going to, I'll, you know, I'll read it and I'll have everything I need and then I'll just be ready to go to write a story. But the reality is that you probably want to leave some of it out. Um, and, you know, if I'm interested, I'll follow up. There's nothing I'm ever, I would never get a PR pitch and then just immediately go to write on it. Um, when I was a reporter, and if any of my reporters did that now, I'd be very angry. Um, so you generally want a tight pitch of two to 300 words. The ones, you know, when I was a reporter, the ones that I appreciated um, were the ones that showed that they had at least had taken the time to go through my byline and see what I actually covered. Um, and I would say, you know, I saw that you wrote this about this company. I have something that's similar or I have something that's in the same vein. Would you like to take a look? And that's, that's more interesting to me. Um, you know, now I still get a lot of pitches that, you know, say like, I love your work on Business Insider. Um, I love the stories you've been writing. And it's, you know, very funny to me because I don't write stories on Business Insider. I just edit them. My byline, I think, has appeared once on Business Insider. Um, so there's, you know, the, the cut paste template jobs. Um, you may as well just send it directly into my trash. Does Business Insider run guest columns? We do a little bit. Um, we have, they're generally run under our op-ed commentary um, section, and it's a pretty high bar at this point. You know, I think that there was probably a time where we maybe would have been a little bit more open to running guest columns. Um, but at this point, you know, we want, if somebody's going to come in and we're going to take a guest column, we want them to have a pretty clear, coherent point of view um, and really be saying something that is going to be, um, not just conventional wisdom that is going to be taking a strong stance on something. Um, and that generally that, you know, this, the article itself will be backed up with some sort of analysis, insight, data, et cetera. Um, you know, we're not interested in just running a guest column where somebody gives an opinion that's based on just their own uh, life experience to date, unless they have a life experience that's truly extraordinary. I was speaking to one of the editors, uh, at the uh, Los Angeles Times uh, with the editorial page. And he said during the Trump administration, they were getting three to 400 guest column pitches a day and they run three a week. So mm -hmm. obviously the odds are minuscule, no matter who you are. Um, what kind of odds are, are, are they at uh, Business Insider if you were to submit a, uh, a guest column? I can't speak because I don't, you know, I'm not the editor in charge of running um, contributors or running our opinion section. Um, I know that, you know, we generally run about five or six stories a week um, under our op-ed banner, I think. Um, so, yeah, the, the odds are, are long. Um, you know, we generally, even if we were interested in getting somebody to speak at length about their expertise, we would probably still want to do it via a reporter talking to that person and not um, just have somebody submit their own column. Um, we're not trying to do the Forbes model or something like that. And you never um, 
take uh, uh, guest guest columns or guest articles uh, from writers for the retail or transportation coverage? We, you know, we certainly, I work with, we work with freelancers, um, but, you know, in the guest column, sort of in the more sort of, I think, in the sense that you mean of sort of, you know, this person is an expert because of their years of business experience, um, and it gives them a chance to also get some promotional light on their own company or product. No, we don't, we don't do that. Um, so, uh, you know, some of the stories on Business Insider are free. Others are only accessible to subscribers. How do you decide what to make free versus premium? Um, it is something that we're still figuring out. I would say that we tend to, things that are going to be premium are times where we feel like we have um, exclusive information. So something that you're not going to be able to read anywhere else. Um, we don't put things that we, you know, uh, what we would call commodity news. So something about a company earnings report a lot of places are going to have that. There's no reason to put that behind a paywall. Um, we, so it tends to be things where we uh, feel like we have exclusive information. We have a big scoop. Uh, we have information about a company that um, we feel like people um, would pay to read. You know, I think that really at the end of the day for us, when we um, do stuff for behind the paywall, the real question is, you know, why would somebody pay to read this? And, um, you know, it's sort of figuring out, do we have a value proposition in this article that makes sense to our readers? Um, you know, generally, uh, so generally for us, that just means things that take, you know, three or four days of reporting versus, you know, three or four hours. Not always. Sometimes we have stuff that our writers work on very fast and we get up very fast behind the paywall. But generally, there are stories that take a little bit longer to work on as well. We're talking to Jake Swearingen. He is the deputy editor at Business Insider. And we're going to discuss the post-pandemic retail recovery more when we return. Stay with us. Jake, based on you know the fact that you're cut, you're 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 the deputy editor on the retail desk, so you're seeing a lot of news um, about retail, and you've been leading that in that position over the over the uh, course of the pandemic. What is your sense on what the future of retail looks like? Boy, um, <laughs> I think if I had a really strong, clear picture of that, I would probably. Uh, be making more money than I am right now. Um, but I do think that um, my sense of the future of retail is that it is probably one where I think the death of brick and mortar has been um, sort of overstated. Um, I think that coming out of the pandemic, there's going to be a renewed appreciation of the joys of going someplace and shopping in person um, versus buying things over the internet, which can feel a little uh, antiseptic or just like a little clinical, you know, you, you don't get the visceral rush of just going and buying something in person. Um, all that said, I think the, you know, the overwhelming trends that we saw happening that we thought were going to take 10 or 15 years, the, you know, the huge rise of e-commerce, um, the move towards things like delivery, grocery shopping, um, moves towards, you know, having a lot more subscription products that are sort of just sort of daily, you know, everyday um, items for around your house, um, subscriptions to diapers, subscriptions to house care products. Um, all of that's going to accelerate. Um, I think that you will probably continue to see consolidation um, in the marketplace. Um, you know, we saw Etsy buying Depop today for about a billion dollars. I think that's only going to pick up steam. Um, and, you know, I think that overall the still the market will tend to favor big companies getting bigger, um, and small companies either really rushing to take on enough funding that they can get big enough to fight themselves or, uh, you know, smaller companies getting to a certain point of growth and then getting acquired by larger companies. So, uh, so many uh, large employers have said that they're not going to require that all their employees come back to the office. Um, what are your expectations for the commercial real estate market moving forward? You know, the, the, this, that isn't a subject that I, I have reporters that cover a lot. Um, 
so you know this is purely layman's uh, speculation. Um, it seems to me that we probably, uh, you know, in Manhattan right now, I think that Manhattan, a lot of the major urban cores, probably overbuilt on commercial real estate, um, and that certainly what we're seeing, um, both from the companies we cover and internally as well at our own company is that, you know, a lot of workers who would come and work in office places like this um, don't want to come in full time. They want to work five days a week in an office. Um, They want some sort of hybrid um, or some of them will probably go full time remote. So I think that future of commercial real estate um, is probably one where there's fewer people and more space. Um, That space has to be a lot more modular. Um, You know, I'm speaking to you in a conference room. I should seat about 20 people. And one of the things that we're going to have to deal with when we get a full crew back into the office is that, um, you know, I can't do a call like this in an open office. Um, like we would have had where, you know, I would have had people on either side of me because, uh, it would be like me talking to you with a car running behind me. It would just be very cacophonous. Um, so yeah, my sense is that commercial real estate, I, I have no idea. I'm not, if I was a commercial real estate developer or somebody heavily invested in commercial real estate, you might be in for a rough time. Um, for the average office worker, I think that your office is probably about to get a little bit more spacious if you continue to come into an office. I was um, in Mid Wilshire area yesterday and uh, I, I was in one of the high rises. And um, when I got off the elevator in the elevator lobby, I saw that the company I was meeting with was the only one left on the floor. Everything else was empty. What are you, are you seeing the same thing in your building in New York? Um, you know, we haven't seen, I'm not sure that many people have left out of our building. We're at one Liberty Plaza. Um, I think that uh, you will probably see more and more companies like us, um, media companies, I'm just thinking in general, probably move down to a smaller footprint in Manhattan, keeping some sort of presence here, but less, um, not needing as much because there's just the understanding now that we actually don't need to have people in five days a week. And when you don't have people in five days a week, your per square footage, even in a place like New York where the per square footage per employee was pretty small, um, the requirements are just not going to be there. Um, So I can't say that I've seen, you know, empty, uh, office towers yet, but um, it certainly seems like that's the way that things are going to move over the next five years. Given the coverage that you're overseeing, um, what lesson do you hope small businesses learned from the pandemic? I think that, you know, one of the things that we've covered a lot um, has been the restaurant space. Um, and, you know, we were really I think, you know, during the early pandemic, um, there was just the sense, I think the small business uh, or the small restaurant association put out something where they said, you know, uh, like six out of 10 restaurants were going to be out of business in the next six months. Um, And certainly it's been really, really tough for a lot of restaurants um, and a lot have gone out of business. Um, A lot of great restaurants here in New York um, and across the globe. one of the things that I think has been surprising is that, you know, it was the restaurants that were able to switch up how they did business very quickly um, and were able to pivot, you know, in the space of a week or two. And some of them were able to get through and some of them were able to continue to stay in business. And, you know, um, some of them, I don't know if any of them are coming out healthier than they did going into the pandemic, um, healthier, meaning, you know, in a better business place. Um, but, uh, I do think that there's probably some uh, some restaurants that came out, you know, with uh, more willing to try new things and more willing to try new ways uh, to bring their food to people, whether that, you know, is going heavily into delivery, moving more to a takeout model, cutting down their menu and figuring out, okay, these are the things that we actually need to do if most of our people are picking up our food. Um, I think that's certainly something that I'm interested that I, I think is a good lesson. Um, I think, you know, the other lesson that I hope that is picked up is, um, you know, the labor shortages that we're seeing right now and that, um, 
I think a lot of restaurants in particular, but also a lot of retail places are starting to experience um, how much of that is dependent on both like money, you know, you have to pay people more. Um, and also a lot of it is dependent on the sense that, you know, your job is um, being given a certain amount of respect, a certain amount of dignity. Um, so doing things like, you know, uh, ultra flex scheduling um, starts to go away that you start to treat people, um, even people that, uh, you know, uh, may not be of the same knowledge worker class as a lot of the management of uh, these larger retail uh, and service establishments um, start to treat the workers with a little bit more dignity. I was speaking with a friend who is involved with a company in LA that is doing um, you know, food delivery. They're, they're also a kitchen and they're selling their food direct and they were forced to pivot to um, Square for Restaurants, uh, which integrates with um, Postmates and Grubhub and Uber Eats. <clears throat> and um, while it did allow them to survive, uh, they quickly realized that, wow, we're, we're paying out 15 to 30% on every order. And, you know, in the terms of service, they're restricted from asking their customers for their contact information. Um, so that, you know, the food delivery apps can continue to demand their pound of flesh in perpetuity. Yeah. Uh, I, I do. Go ahead. Sorry. You think that restriction is sustainable for online marketplaces and for sellers? I think that's, I mean, I think that's one of the major open questions um, when it comes to food delivery. Um, none of to my knowledge, none of the food delivery vendors, um, DoorDash, Seamless, Grove, you know, et cetera, um, have managed to turn a profit off of delivering food to people. Um, but at the same time, they, I think, are increasingly, you know, encountering um, restaurant operators that are unsatisfied with the margins that they're able to get using these delivery services. At the same time, you have a consumer base that got used to ordering food uh, for delivery via these apps during the pandemic. And that may be behavior that's really hard to shift. Um, you know, I think worst case scenario, what you end up doing is, you know, sort of what you're seeing with Uber right now when it comes to, you know, rideshare stuff, which is you got people used to a certain level of service costing a certain price. And then as these companies realize that they have to deliver profitability because like DoorDash, they go public, all of a sudden prices start to get jacked and, um, somebody ends up paying, whether that is, you know, the restaurant, the consumer, um, somebody. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that there is certainly, you know, we did a story recently with um, a guy who was a young, a young kid at Stanford in 2006 or so. Um, is right, but he, he coded up a piece of software that allowed people to place food delivery orders um, before even the iPhone. I think he had just a BlackBerry message, a PBM. Um, if people remember what those were, um, and it was a, you know, it was a, it was a nice piece of technology Grubhub as it was really starting to get, uh, rolling up. It saw this technology. It was like, Oh, this is a nice platform. They bought it from him. He sold it. He stayed at Grubhub for about a year. Um, and about a year ago, somebody wrote a medium post sort of lamenting, um, the current state of food delivery and how, you know, the margins and the fees that they're charging to restaurants can be pretty egregious. And in a late night sort of comment, he wrote, you know, um, I, I'm going to mess up the quote directly, but he was basically like, I feel like I helped, you know, facilitate evil. Um, we interviewed him and I think that, you know, he was a little bit more modulated in his comments to us. Um, you know, he feels like on the one hand, he doesn't, he feels like it's maybe an exploitative relationship and he has a new startup where he's trying to figure out a way to make it a, a better deal for both the restaurant and the delivery operator. I do think that it's at the end of the day, you're just facing a really tough um a really tough problem in that the logistics of getting food from one place to another using a person are really onerous and tough um and i don't think anybody's figured out a way to do it profitably and so until that actually happens i'm not sure that anybody's going to be very happy with the arrangement except for you know the customers who are getting delivery largely subsidized off investor dollars uh, you know, granted, they've got deep pockets, but uh, Domino's saw huge growth uh, in on, uh, orders filed on their mobile app 
um, right after the pandemic. I think the majority of their orders were over the app. I think it was in excess of 75% uh, in the three months after the global pandemic was declared. Um, they can obviously afford to develop technology that's robust. They've got this pizza tracker where you order your pizza and you can see what stage it's in in the process and when you're going to get it. It's really pretty fantastic. Uh, but obviously, small businesses don't have the wherewithal to create something like that. So they wind up relying on these uh, tech brands um, to get it out mm -hmm. there. But, but we also saw huge growth with Shopify, a lot of small mm -hmm. businesses coming online in the e-commerce space. Um, and, you know, Shopify doesn't take a commission. Uh, they mm -hmm. charge a, a, a subscription fee. Uh, so if you think about, you know, the position that small businesses are in and also the importance that small businesses have to an economy, given that they're the number one employer, any ideas on how small business should be using technology to thrive at a time when the landscape is increasingly dominated by big tech brands? Hmm. I mean, I do think that, you know, I think that companies like Shopify are great um, and that they do sort of enable small business to very quickly have a platform that feels and operates the same as, you know, the platform that a huge company would be using. Um, I do think in some ways that there, there are now methods where a company that can be three or four people um, or five or six people, um, you know, to go back to the DTC space, um, you know, there are very, you know, well, DTC brands that are doing very well for themselves that are, you know, 20 or 30 people and they're able to use smart, you know, smart advertising by using things like Instagram and a few other highly targeted methods for reaching customers being really lean when it comes to how much office space they're taking up, how much they're you know, spending on manufacturing. Um, I think that there is certainly a way that you can use the sort of existing tech ecosystem to your advantage as a small business um, for, you know, and I think that there is some ways that you can really, you know, um, if you can find a very a niche that is not being served right now and protect it in whatever way, you can be very successful. I think that, you know, what we've largely seen and what I've observed is that it seems like a small business can do very well um, if it does find a niche of doing a couple of things that people really, really enjoy and it can grow large doing that. Um, I think Rothy's is a DTC brand that's seen a lot of success sort of doing women's shoes that are a very particular style, very particular sort of vibe um, and selling those at, you know, good margins. Um, what small businesses aren't able to do in a way that maybe they would have been 20 or 30 years ago when tech players weren't crowding out and weren't able to so easily blanket um, the space is they can't be generalists. You have to have a market niche that you occupy very solidly and understand what you're, what you're doing and why your product is, owns this niche um you can't be a generalist you can't you know expect to just compete on selling commodity items um because you will get washed by either large competitors or a lot of chinese um companies that can do what you're doing for a lot cheaper jake swearingen deputy editor at business insider thanks for joining us absolutely thanks for having me For more on how you can earn influence through Earn Media, get the Digital Pivot audiobook at digitalpivotbook.com.